2: Welcome to episode 162 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Today we have three cases uh, that the pad has found for us. Our first case is from the Illinois Appellate First, Van Buren versus City of Chicago. Our second case is Aquino versus Hall, that was recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court Second District. And our third case is 401 North Wabash versus CNA from the Illinois First District. Let's turn to our first case today. What is sufficient to be probable cause to establish a malicious prosecution claim? Does a grand jury indictment alone suffice? Are investigating officers permitted to rely on eyewitnesses to a shooting without questioning any inconsistencies? Is it null a nolle prosecute? <laughs> I'll probably butcher that, but. Uh, That's
1: we'll why everyone only says nolle no, pros.
2: <laughs> nolle pros, right? A termination right. of the proceeding in favor of the plaintiff sufficient to support that element of the claim. Those were among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Van Buren versus City of Chicago. The plaintiff was jailed for nearly 19 months following a shooting at a restaurant caught on video and witnessed by two people that identified him. Ultimately, the case was dismissed and plaintiff re- was released from custody after his head was shaved in court and it was shown that he did not have the scar on his head consistent with the shooter shown on the video the circuit court granted summary judgment in favor of the city and the plaintiff appealed. Pat, tell us about this case. Very interesting
1: case, Dan. Um, and this is the same, these are the same lawyers that had this case that's had the green versus state of Illinois case that we, that recently got reversed where there was the shooting of the man at the traffic stop. Uh, this was, uh, the same lawyers that are uh, represent the, the plaintiff in this case. Um, so they've been just very busy fellows recently. Um, there, Dan mentioned some of the facts, uh, and there's more. Uh, there are more facts. Apparently, there was a discrepancy in how the fellow walked, uh, whether he had a limp. Uh, the, one of the witnesses was a, a girlfriend or a former girlfriend of his who said that he had been violent with her, um, had threatened her, and but she also obviously knew him very well and was she claimed she could identify him. There also was a discrepancy about his height. Um, the, the shooter was apparently over six feet tall, whereas the plaintiff is only five foot seven. Um, and the argument is, is that you you couldn't, if you, you looked at these this video critically, you couldn't possibly conclude, uh, or no reasonable person could conclude that this was that person. Now, in response, you know, the, the plaintiffs or the defendants say, well, there was a grand jury finding. Well. There was a lot of discussion of the Beeman versus Friesmeyer case, which we discussed early on in the show, uh, and even had David Shapiro on the show a couple times, who represented the plaintiff in that case. And I find it really hard because I think there were grand jury proceedings in that case. In Illinois, so. criminal proceedings can proceed either through an information or through a grand jury. It doesn't have to. You don't have to have a grand jury. Sometimes you do have a grand jury for political reasons, or you know, like the Jesse Jesse Smollett case, there was a grand jury. Um, you know, in those kinds of cases, they have they'll have a grand jury, but you don't have to have a grand jury. In this case, they they did, um, but you know, as as the saying goes, you can get a ham sandwich indicted by a grand jury, uh, and if the officers lied to the grand jury, I don't know if they did or not, but if they, you know, then. That would taint the entire process. Um, so I, I really, I don't know if the mere fact that there was a grand jury finding, which obviously is a finding of probable cause to proceed to trial, you would think that that would be enough. But if the whole process was tainted, I don't know if that gets you. I think the whole point of a malicious prosecution claim is the process has been tainted, and in view of it, of it having been tainted. None of the process is good. It's a malicious prosecution. The prosecution starts from the date of the arrest, if not before, all the way through the time that there's the the termination of the criminal litigation, which brings us to this element that he was nolle So there there was, which is just a dismissal. Uh, it, I I don't know, Dan. Did they say if it was with or without prejudice? I don't recall if they said.
2: I don't think they did. No. But it
1: wasn't an acquittal. It wasn't a finding of innocence. Uh, it wasn't, you know, something like that where you, you know, a step further than, but most, you know, many cases end in process for a whole variety of reasons. It's certainly not inconsistent with, uh, with a termination in favor of the plaintiff, indicating, indicating not guilt, if the, or lack of guilt or innocence, it, it, it if the so the government can get out of a malicious prosecution claim by by realizing their mistake early on and naly it even though the process that had happened before that had been malicious if they can show that element which is a separate element entirely I don't see how nallypross itself isn't enough to show a, a favorable termination you ask you ask any criminal defendant they'll take a nalypross any day of the week um as opposed to have to go to the risk of trial or get a conviction. You know, this fellow was held in custody for 19 months. It was unclear why. It, it, it it's because it would got Nollyprossed, he didn't proceed to trial. It seems he was held in pretrial detention for that long. Um I could be wrong, but I, I think that's what that that seems consistent with a with a situation where it was where the case was was dismissed. Um you know he was held pretrial for nearly, you know, for a year and a half. Uh, that's a long time. That's the damages shouldn't be much of a question here if he is, it, it, you know, if you know, given that he didn't commit, uh, didn't commit this crime. So there's a lot of issues with this case. Um, we what I didn't hear was what we heard in the Friesmeyer case where the officers had doctored the time trial that they did of the, of the the defendant's drive from Rockford to Bloomington, uh, you know, they had, they had, uh, you know, they had essentially doctored that, that evidence. There were other things they had done that was here that, that had essentially fabricated evidence or looked at evidence in a way that was not critical. Um, this seems to be some of that in terms of not looking at it critically, but not anything at least that I heard, Dan, and maybe I'm wrong that, they affirmatively, you know, created evidence or or didn't, you know, did something as bad as what happened in the Friesmeyer case. I don't think is what happened in the Friesmeyer case is necessarily what you need. I mean, it's obviously, it certainly makes out the claim, but I don't know if you need conduct that arises to that level in order to show a malicious prosecution. Um, I, I didn't hear much on the on the malice element um, of, no. of this so I, I don't know if they what they had to prove that their argument essentially was a jury should decide it um that they had enough to create a question of fact an inference based upon what what happened maybe um it, it sure seems like there's questions of fact here but we'll'll we'll, we'll see what the appellate court does i, I, I they only as you' you know the defense only has to show um one you know, only has to beat one of these elements. Uh, And there's five of them. Uh, So if they can beat any one of them and show there's no question of fact, then they win. Uh, So they've got a lot of fronts to fight on, the defense or the plaintiff does. But uh, it it sure seems like this investigation was not done very well. If you didn't even figure out if the scar on the prominent scar on the head isn't on this person and all you needed to do was shave his head to figure it out. And they ultimately do it apparently in the courtroom and they figure out that he doesn't have the scar that's shown on the uh, on the video. Dan, what are your thoughts?
2: I agree with you, Pat. And, and you know, one reason he may not have done the scar thing is, you know, I, I'm not sure how much power you have to do that when you have a suspect, right? They, they don't have to cooperate on that front, probably. But who I knows? mean, if he has the
1: ability to show I don't have the scar, you know, and and, and he, all he has to do is shave his head to show it's not there. That's yeah. I shave me. <laughs> let's go yeah. you know, get it who's got the clippers uh, let, yeah. let's show you i don't have the i don't have the scar
2: uh. yeah i mean this is, you know this case just shows how eyewitness things and things we think we see um well you know the experiments that that we all are familiar with as lawyers of people coming into a to a room where a professors at, and then you just try to describe what the person was wearing their characteristics very well, difficult. Talk
1: more about that experiment because people may not know what you're talking about. We've all had had experienced
2: yeah. it, it. So, it, so some it, it law professors that. will have somebody come in the room and and like it them, you know, do something. Uh, They're in the room for five seconds. Five seconds. They run, room, through, they, inter- they run through. They run podium. The yeah. Yeah, they yeah. They
1: interrupt the lecture. They come in. They take. They take something. They write something. They do something. They and then need, they get out. And then and then five minutes later, the 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 professor says, okay what color shirt was the person wearing?
2: What, right. whether it was it a man tall? or was it a woman, how tall yeah. were they?
1: And you get, you've got, you ask five people and you get six different answers.
2: Right. Right. And it's a pretty, it just shows you, you know, how, how we see what we think we see, right. And how the brain works. There's a lot of that behind that, but, uh, an interesting case. I agree with you. I'm not sure that this, uh, that this rises to the level of, uh, you know, uh, uh uh, of egregiousness. So
1: I don't but know. We'll it, see.
2: There's a, yeah, I wish the,
1: the, unfortunately the trial court opinion was just motion granted motion denied. Right. So right. I wasn't able to get the court's opinion. Um, and, and I, I didn't have the heart to read through all the briefs because <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of them. There was a motion to reconsider. There, there was a lot there. Um, and so I, as I said, I didn't have the heart to read through it all. Uh, but I, we'll get the opinion and figure it out. But it was a very interesting argument. Uh, and, and if you're interested in this issue, I would certainly commend it to you. It was well argued by both sides. It was. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's, it's a good lesson on this particular, this particular uh, uh, tort. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with D'Aquino versus
0: Hall. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at PodiumAndPanelPodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: We're back for segment two of episode 162, and does a landlord owe a a duty to an employee of a tenant for the allegedly improper installation of a car lift? Is the lift a trade fixture that is the responsibility of the tenant? Was the circuit court proper to strike the plaintiff's expert's affidavit with regards to the date that Will County adopted certain codes that the plaintiff argued imposed the duty on the landlord? Does it matter that a car had previously fallen off this lift that allegedly collapsed and harmed the, the plaintiff? And it's in a different instance where this car a car fell off the lift. Those are among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 2nd District decides Aquino versus Hall. The plaintiff was injured when a car lift collapsed. The plaintiff sued the landlord for failing to ensure that the lift was installed in accordance with the code and was safe. The circuit court granted summary judgment to the plaintiff. I suspect Dan strongly the reason they didn't sue the tenant is because that was his employer. So they yes. were they they would they would have been uh, there's uh, a workers immune. comp issue, right? Exactly, they would have been immune under workers comp, which is why yep. they went after the tenant. So
2: Dan, why don't you tell us about the oral argument? Sure, Pat, and thank you. There, there were a, <laughs> if you listen to this oral argument, um, uh, uh, what a what a proverbial show. In terms yeah. of the underlying record the affidavits uh pat mentioned that the will county ordinance what comes up at trial that this uh this building itself is in naperville and so the question becomes does the naperville uh ordinance which is separate and apart uh, from the will county ordinance uh trump or or override the attorney for the plaintiff, so it doesn't matter because the same international uh, protocols and international maintenance rules apply there was questions about uh, some some of the testimony and affidavits pat uh, that uh, these ordinances were in effect and that they hadn't changed you know all this stuff but then uh, some of the questioning from justices and some of the discussion and oral argument uh, it came out that, uh, there was a question. So the, 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 uh, uh, these lifts, the original lifts were installed in 2000 or 2001, I believe it was. The, uh, comes out later that the guy who was the property manager, uh, became an owner, but not until 2003. Um, and, and what, what's at stake here, Pat, was the general rule that applies in Illinois and many states is that the commercial landlord pretty much for stuff that occurs within the premises, just like a, a landlord of, of rental places, uh, has no liability, there's certain exceptions. And, you know, the plaintiff's lawyer came out of the box pretty, pretty uh, aggressively and said that the uh, circuit court erred in granting summary judgment uh, uh, predicated on various leases the ordinances, the duties of a property manager and a volunteer undertaking. The, uh, as I mentioned there, there was, uh, w- when the first lease was issued, uh, there were, uh, Will County ordinances that, uh, debatably given the, given the appellant and, and appellee's positions, uh, included the international building code and international maintenance requirements. The, um, the, the original position of plaintiff here is that what really uh, led to this unfortunate injury eventually was that the landlord uh, failed to get permits to install these uh, lifts. Uh, these lifts were owned by uh, the auto mechanic store down the street. They took them out of there, they installed them here, uh, a lot of discussion. Uh, during oral argument a lot of questions about whether uh, the position truly was that these fixtures that that were installed by and intended to be taken out by the auto mechanic if they ever moved uh, as their own uh, fixtures uh, there was a lot of questions by the justices of the plaintiff on their position that somehow the landlord uh, became responsible and headed uh, you know had, had safety and maintenance uh, issues to Address and and responsibilities because of the ordinance, and uh, like I said, the uh, the ordinances that the plaintiff uh, was discussing at first were those of Will County, and then when when asked by the justices and then by the appellate as well, uh, when when they got up, the uh, it turns out like I said that uh, this is in Naperville, and like Cook County, so practitioners in Illinois know that. A lot of these county ordinances uh, apply, but it's only to the unincorporated. And a lot of times the major uh, places like uh, Naperville, Naperville, Naperville and Will County, uh, Chicago and Cook County, there's exceptions that say, you know, this home rule doesn't apply to those big municipalities. Um, and again, the uh, Because
1: otherwise you may have inconsistent rules. You may have right. the county saying A and the city saying B, and you want to just have one. So typically it's the city that deals with what's in its limits and the county deals with the unincorporated parts.
2: Yep. And one of the cases, the appellant brought up a case, uh, Collada, uh, from the early 1990s. I think it was an only Supreme Court case that said the violation of an ordinance is prima facie uh, evidence of negligence. Again, I, you know, the, 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 the justices seem to really press uh, the appellant's counsel on her positions and views. Uh, if you take it to a conclusion, as the appellee said, then what you're saying is that the landlord owner of the building, uh, would own these uh, fixtures and, and have other responsibilities. Um, that you, like you said, Pat, there was, there was another incident where a car rolled off the, the lifts. Um, they, they put some things on, t- on them in the corner so that the cars will not roll off. Um, but these were, like I said, these were installed by uh, the tenant of the, of the building. And so uh, um, that was, uh, uh, you know, that, 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 that came out on the uh, uh, on oral argument. One what, what of the justices, it may have been Burdett, asked if the ordinance is supposed to uh, B for, for oversight and and uh, again one uh, one of the things as is I is I listened to the oral argument and, and was uh, taking notes that I, that I thought is, is that again I think the, the appellant here has a, a hard argument to make I think to say that uh, that that somehow the landlord because of this ordinance that talks about the maintenance and the international codes. That somehow, even though it's it's an auto mechanics business inside there, where those people are there every day looking at stuff, they're the ones that installed these uh, items. Uh, I'm not sure that the the argument about permits uh, really would have made a difference. Uh, and one of the justices, I think, asked that question: "Like, okay, so if they if they did get a permit, right? Like, what would that have done anyway?" Uh, the only thing it may have done is is in some communities, uh, again, Chicago doesn't do it very much, but I know in construction and other things like this, uh, if, if there was a permit process, uh, what it does bring uh, to bear is that city inspectors will come out and look at stuff and sign off on things. But again, I'm not sure that they would have uh, 20 years ago uh, or 15, 18 years before this accident occurred would have Found anything wanting or, or not, uh, you know, good with these lifts that would have caused uh, the collapse to, to have occurred. And again, it's a long period of time when you, when you look at when these were installed 2000 2001. Accident, I think, occurred in 2018. So I just think, you know, I, I think that the uh, appellant here uh, has a tough time. Um, you know, and they, they she had it, uh, the experts. Uh, that talked about uh, the ordinances. And like I said, one of the affidavits was stricken because uh, it just sounds like to me, it's one of those cases, Pat, we talk a lot about uh, the record and preserving the record and getting everything in that you need to. It sounds like there was some things here, like the fact that they focused on Will County ordinances at the trial court and they may or may not have applied, uh, that there was some concessions in some of the depositions uh, of the ordinances being in effect, uh, there's uh, one of one of the things that would also occurred was the owner uh, that currently owns. As I mentioned, he he didn't own the building until 2003, but I guess in his deposition he testified that he uh, was the owner the entire time. And again, uh, one one of the arguments I think of of, of uh, was that if if he wasn't the owner back in 2000 2001 then he can't have responsibility for having failed to get the permit and things of that nature. So an interesting case. A very interesting case.
1: And, uh, not unlike the one we had last week, we talked about with dealing with permits and things in Wilk in Wilk County. So, um, it's a, uh, um, this seems to be, uh, it's amazing how these things come in waves and this one certainly did. Uh, we're going to talk about another permit here in the next case. Um, right. so, Permits all around Uh, for some reason. uh, It seems to be the issue issue of the month. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with...
0: Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at, at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: We're back for segment three of episode 162 of the podium and panel podcast. If you thought Donald Trump had enough legal troubles, now the building that bears his name has legal issues with the EPA and its insurers. Pursuant to a series of permits, the building has used an HVAC system that takes in water from the Chicago River and then ejects the used water back into the river. In 2018, the regulators raised issues with the permit because of harm to wildlife in the river caused by the heat of water being ejected into the river. The building was sued by the Sierra Club and others. The building sought coverage from several insurers, but the circuit court found there was no duty to defend as it was not an occurrence and or the pollution exclusion applied. The insured argued that because they were operating pursuant to a permit, they did not expect or intend any damage. Pat, tell us about this case. So there's a lot, it seems a bit confusing
1: here uh, and uh, some things we don't know from the oral argument. And again, the, the opinion here was just motion granted, motion denied duty to defend, you know, no duty to defend this kind of a thing, which is what this fight's really about is a duty to defend. Um, so, and again, I didn't have the heart to read all the briefs. I was hoping to get a shortcut from the opinion, but I couldn't get that. So we've got some, we've got some, uh, cause I, I contrary to popular belief, I do have a life. Um, <laughs> it, it, it turns out Dan and I do have lives. We can't, we can listen to the order I can't read all the briefs. Sorry. Right. Uh, but it, it's unclear to me if this is the IEPA or the EPA that's causing the problem. Uh, the, the building we're talking about is the Trump tower at 401 North Wabash. It's right in the caption of the case. Um, that's 401 North Wabash venture versus continental insurance, CNA, And then also there's uh, QBE is involved and one other carrier whose name escapes me. Ace, I think it is, that's involved. And so this is the building that is across just to the east of what was the one IBM building. It was where the former uh, Sun-Times building is. It's that little bend in the river right uh, as as you come off of the lake. So it's this great location and it, it, it sits right there and apparently they've been for many years going back to um 2005 they had a permit for the HVAC system to take in water uh to to uh, run the HVAC system and then eject it back out into the river um and it's heated in that and apparently that that permit was issued in 05 renewed in like 12 and then in 18 it became a problem and this is plainly, we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about this, but there's certainly been a number of cases recently before the Supreme Court of the United States on point sources. Look at the County of Maui case, um, which, you know, what is a point source that you need a permit uh, for the for purposes of the Clean Water Act? And there was a more recent case that came down since then, and I'm drawing a blank on its name, where they decided that it wasn't the the, the ephemeral or amorphous test, it was more of this direct test. And I'm just drawing a blank on the name of the te- name of the case, but this has been a big deal, but there's no doubt that this is a point source. It's going water right into the navigable water. Chicago river is plainly a navigable water. There's none of these issues regard. Oh, I remember the case. It's, this is the, uh, this is the case for the Sackett case from Idaho that recently yep, decided it, it, that's the case. And it, where this is the case where the, the people had, uh, you know, whether they're, they're, their land was a wetland, and it was across a road and underground water and across, over the hills to grandma's house to get to the navigable water. In this case, this building this is the reason why I set this up. It sits right on the river. You can see the intakes. You can see the outflows. It's right there. It, it's it's not a this is not a question. In Maui, it was a it had kind of like a half a mile between the point source and the. And the Pacific Ocean, Pacific Ocean being the navigable water, the underground water not being a navigable water. Um, this is a navigable water, no doubt about these things. So the question then becomes for the insurance coverage issue is this an occurrence for the insuring agreement under the commercial general liability policy? And that's where most of the time of the argument was spent. Did they? And so was it an and so an occurrence is is as is defined typically as an is an as an accident easy for me to say and an accident is something that someone expects or the, the results of which that one expects or intends so for example if i drive my car negligently it is a natural and probable cause or natural probable uh, result that i'm going to get into an accident and people are going to get injured and property might be damaged. If I drive my car too fast, or if I run a red light and I, I and I, that's just mere negligence. Now, if that's different then then, but is it, so then the question becomes, is it a natural and probable occurrence uh, or natural and probable outcome of discharge of this water that when under the circumstances where you have a permit from the, from the regulator, whether that's the state or the feds, do I, do, that I'm going to harm fish that I, by ejecting this, this warm water into, into, the, uh, into the river. Um, is that, and the court said, well, that's not, that's plainly not, that's what the, the circuit court said, that's plainly not, of course you know that's what's going to happen. That's why you got the permit. So you could go do it. Uh, and when you, and when your permit is pulled and you get sued for this by the Sierra Club and others, then you, friends of the river, I'm sure too, uh, then you don't get that that's not an occurrence and then of course you have the pollution exclusion and I don't see how this isn't covered by the pollution exclusion this seems about to be as traditional a pollution as you could expect you're taking water that has been changed it's warm and you're putting it into uh, you're putting it into the 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 uh, the river I, I don't see how it isn't covered by both I, I really have a hard time understanding what the Uh, Plaintiff's argument here is for coverage because I neither see it as a an occurrence nor not covered by the pollution exclusion. I just I, I just don't see it. What I'm very interested to find out when we get the case is, you know, the history of these permits and what what exactly they were being permitted for, who was allowing it. You don't necessarily need, depending upon the Clean Water Act, did not trump the ability of the states to permit most permits for. Uh, for pollutants are issued by the states um that's you know that that's typically how this is done it, it it's that that's usually how this how this occurs the question is is it the kind of thing that needs a permit and they had it so the question is why did it get yanked why did uh, who who decided that it should get yanked what was different over the 13 years you know they started in 05 and then in 18 and something's wrong so what what happened why the circumstances changed. Uh, you know, frankly, the river had already been reversed a century ago. we? Uh, for those that aren't familiar, it used to be that the very polluted Chicago River ran into the Lake Lake Michigan, and that was a bad idea because the city gets its water from the Lake from Lake Michigan. And so they reversed the river so that the river now, the lake now flows into the river. And when they did that, now the Chicago River then runs into the Illinois River that then runs ultimately into the Mississippi River. And St. Louis got mad and said, you can't, you put all your sewage down down our way now. And th- uh, my understanding is the federal judges, and so what, is New Orleans going to complain now when you send the river, the, send your sewage down to New Orleans? And they're like, you can't, you can't do that. It's like, we get to put, <laughs> so yes, your drinking water now has a problem because of what Chicago is doing, but New Orleans is going to be next uh, in their complaints. So, uh, say, cause St. Louis, you know, those that live in glass houses was essentially the argument because St. Louis does the same thing that Chicago wanted to do and is doing and has done. So, uh, that's, uh, and this is, this is going back to the period of time when the slaughter uh, down on the South branch of the Chicago river, you had the, uh, you had the slaughterhouses, uh, down by the stockyards and all of that went into the river and it was running then into the lake and polluting the water uh, that was being used to drink from. And that obviously didn't work well. So then we sent it down the river and sent it down the other way as opposed to other people. So that's the, the huge engineering project at the early part of the 20th century to reverse the Chicago, the flow of the Chicago River. Um, anyway, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts on this case?
2: You're muted, Dan. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't really see the arguments here for coverage. Uh, So we'll see what happens. And, you know, the cynic in me says that what changed is is the politics and who may have been representing a certain uh, party in that building. We know on the tax side who was who was doing it for a long period of time. uh, A person that's uh, indicted at the Northern District of Illinois. (laughs) So,
1: yeah, I I mean, oh, I I got you. I got you. So from
2: a permitting perspective. You just wonder.
1: May, maybe, but this happened under the Trump administration. The change happened in 2018. It seemed the EPA was involved and it happened under the Trump administration. It, it's, you know, I, I I hear you. Something changed.
2: I would love to know what it was. We may never know. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the permit was the, the problem, though, right? So who knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who the hell knows? Right. And yeah, maybe we'll find out in the in the opinion. Sometimes, as right. as we've talked about, we, you know we don't have full insights into what's going on until the opinions come out and sometimes you learn facts or things that may have been in the record well, that would have
1: been nice to know
2: right right but <laughs> it would, would have made our predictions and job easier here but exactly. they're not doing it for us
1: <laughs> exactly they're not uh so with that that brings us to our bi for COVID. nothing really doing this week uh nope. uh we'll keep an eye on out uh, for that uh, our prediction sure to go wrong we were two and uh, one I forgot. One we forgot to mention last week uh, when I did the show solo, that's on me, but so we'll talk about the two cases today. Uh, Dan is 241, 55, and 17. I am 238, 58, and 17. The case I forgot to talk about is State Farm versus Jenkins. This is one we discussed on episode 159. This case dealt with a situation where um, the uh, this is a case where the the court, um, found that the plaintiff had to come forward with affirmative evidence that the at-fault tortfeasor was uninsured. Uh, they simply just, you know, simply not having the person's information, uh, them not being cooperative and getting a default judgment. That doesn't tell us anything about it. They had a duty to bring the claim within coverage and they didn't do that. So an important case for those, uh, in that particular area. Uh, and then that brings us to uh, the one, another one we got right, uh, Bill Bray versus Garcia. Dan, why don't you tell us about that case?
2: And this was the case, uh, uh, what, whether a hospital would be vicariously liable, uh, for, for the alleged negligence of a physician, uh, working, you know, un, under the doctrine of apparent authority. This was a case where the, the person was rushed to the emergency room, uh, received some treatment and the doctor was an independent contractor. And, uh, you know there were signs and things and so uh, an interesting case that uh, a lot of these cases happen we've covered a couple of these cases i think pat with signs and this whole concept you know back when we were probably young kids uh, the model was very different you know the the hospital uh, doctors and nurses and everybody were employees of the hospital in many cases and now uh, that's become less and less of a of a kind of a structure so an interesting.
1: Indeed, case. what I found interesting about this is we've learned in the in the opinion was that the plaintiff had already settled with the already settled with the doctors. Right. And the other part of the Gilbert versus Sycamore case, if you settle with the, the agent, the principal's off the hook. So I don't yeah. understand why this case wasn't done from the get. Yeah. Um so I, yeah. I there must have been some agreement or carve out that allowed that. The uh I, I don't understand. Um, no, it and again that's
2: something else. It's, it's something we learned in the opinion that wasn't discussed at all arguments and uh, and, and like you said, we still don't really know what, what the heck's going on. There must have been a car water of some kind, of, like you said. They had a settlement agreement, been. said that uh, you know that that you know they they weren't releasing or relinquishing any rights to go after the hospital. I don't know. That's right. That way, by the way, we discussed that on episode one hundred twenty seven, which brings
1: us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Um Van Buren versus City, I think this gets affirmed.
2: Affirmed, I think.
1: I, I, I don't think it should, but I think that's what's gonna happen based on what yes, I heard. Same. I mean I I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a sucker for these kinds of cases. I don't trust the Chicago police very much. Uh and so I I am a sucker for say, you know, let a jury sort it out, but I, I don't think that's what's gonna happen here. Um no. I think Di Aquino versus Hall gets gets affirmed. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I,
2: from from just the questioning you know, and just the, 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 like I was saying when we discussed the case, I think it's a big hurdle uh, to convince uh, the, the, this panel uh, that that somehow the landlord has all these obligations and owner of the building. Yeah. And
1: then finally, uh, four hundred one North Wabash versus CNA that gets affirmed too, right? I think so. Okay, that brings us to our rule of the week, which is another Corey of the week, a hat
2: tip to Corey Webster. Dan, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, and last week, Corey posted uh, whether you should cite, should you cite a dissenting opinion? And what he said is, it depends on your audience and whether the majority opinion is binding precedent. Then he said, in California, trial courts must follow published majority opinions of the Court of Appeal. They aren't interested and what a dissenting justice said. But when that trial court's ruling goes on appeal, the rules of precedent change. There's no horizontal stare decisis in the California Court of Appeal. If there's no controlling decision from the California Supreme Court, an appellant panel is free to reach whatever outcome it views as correct. Then he gave one ramification, the panel who will decide your case might be persuaded by the rationale in a prior dissent. And then he said he was at a CLE presentation where staff attorneys from the California Court of Appeal confirmed that they look at dissents carefully and that the justices do not hesitate to adopt a persuasive view expressed in the dissent. So in the California Court of Appeal, feel free to cite the dissent. Just be sure to explain why the dissent got it right. And this is, you know, it's, uh, it makes sense. I, I think, as he noted, you know, tread carefully if you're going to cite a dissent, um, but it happens all the time in the Supreme Court of the United States. It happens in the Seventh Circuit. It happens in other appellate courts. Uh, But you have to have some really good reasoning of why you're citing to it, right? And you have to make the argument of why that's the correct law. And, uh, you know, but, you know, if you have it, I mean, sometimes that's all you have to to argue in your case.
1: You go go with what you got. Uh, And, uh, you, you know, if all you've got is a dissent, it's obviously not the best. But if you, can, if you uh, can make the argument, you do what you can. At least preserve the issue with the trial court. If the trial court says, I can't go along with you, but at least it gives you fodder when you go to the next level. Exactly. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We'll see you next week.
2: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast. We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.